Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Beacon. Um, so glad to see you all here. Yeah, if uh, you guys have your Bibles, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter seven. So you can turn there. Um, we'll we'll straight we'll go we'll go straight into it. It was July thirty first, twenty sixteen. So that was four and a half years ago. Jameson and Catherine Powell's were both 29 years old. They attended Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, which is where John Piper pastored for many years. The couple had three small children, Ezra, who was three years old, Violet, who was 23 months old, and Calvin, who was two months old. Their family was preparing to serve as missionaries to Japan, and they were actually intending to go to Christ's Bible Institute, uh, which is the institute that our church, Lighthouse, supports. The couple had already sold most of their belongings uh, so that they could move in late October. They're driving from Minneapolis to Colorado for their last uh, training session. And they only had three hours to go on their 13 hour journey. They had just left uh, water park and in an interstate construction, construction zone, a semi-truck rear-ended the family's vehicle. There was a five-vehicle pileup, and tragically, um, the entire Powell's family died at the scene. The preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7.15, In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And the preacher is not alone in what he observes. I mean, we see this in our, in our own lives. But there are also others in the Old Testament who point out the righteous man perishes. They, they wonder and wrestle with, with what they see in life. They ask, why do the wicked still live? Why do they prosper? And this cry is, is not uncommon because retribution theology, as you see in Proverbs, it teaches that the righteous will be delivered from death and trouble, and the wicked will not go unpunished, that the ears of the wicked will be shortened. But then we learn that the, this retribution formula, it, it's not a rigid one. There, there are exceptions. In actual life, the godly do, in fact, die young. The ungodly do live long, and we are confused. We feel the pain, and we want to ask why. The loss of the righteous weighs heavy on our hearts. But in our passage last week, the preacher has told us that in the day of adversity, we ought to consider. God has made this day of adversity as well. And this loss, this adversity, it's not by happenstance. It's not random. We know that God is sovereign, even over the crook in our lot. When we wholeheartedly believe in this, that God is sovereign, this is when we learn true wisdom. If sorrow is a better teacher than gladness, then in the day of adversity, we can receive the wisdom that God has for us. 
and that's what we'll be receiving tonight as we look at the rest of chapter 7. Um, this is the main idea of our passage. And true wisdom is not for control. It protects us from danger. Again, true wisdom is not for control. True wisdom protects us from danger. In the light of the righteous perishing despite his righteousness and the wicked living long despite his wickedness, how are we supposed to live? So we read in verses 16 to 18, the preacher says this, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, this passage can be confusing. You know, as the preacher is saying, avoid the extremes, live in moderation. Is he saying, you know, don't be too righteous, but don't be too wicked. Be right in the middle. Like have some, some wisdom, but, but don't be holier than thou. Don't be a stickler for rules. You know, it's all right if you tell a little white lie. You, know, you, have, you have the right to be a little bitter towards her. Just don't take it too far. Yeah, I don't think that's what the preacher is saying here, to have some righteousness and some wickedness. I think verse 17 is easier to understand. You know, be not excessively wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? If you're a drunkard or a druggie, chances are most likely you will not live long. You'll reap the consequences. But what does he mean in verse 16? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. How can someone be too righteous or, or too wise? You know, isn't righteousness and wisdom exactly what we're supposed to pursue? And didn't the Lord command us to love him with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our might? So it sounds impossible to be overly righteous. So to answer this question, what does verse 16 mean? I think we need to remember the, the leading question of this book back in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The implied answer is nothing. Solomon is trying to show in his book that if you try to pursue anything in this world for your own gain, then it's Havel. And then it's life. It, it, it's like, oh, sorry. It's like breath. You, you can't grab it. You can't control your life in this world. And you can't fully understand this world. So if you try to pursue wisdom for your own gain and to control life in a way that's independent of God, then, then it's striving after wind. There'll be much vexation and much sorrow. In the words of our section in chapter 7, 18, you will destroy yourself. And actually this word destroy in the verb form that it's used um, in other passages that use this, this word, it, it has the meaning of appalled or, or amazed in a negative way. Like you've seen something disturbing, like a frightening vision, and, and you're dismayed. That's what happens when you, you seek wisdom and righteousness with the wrong 
expectation. If you think that these things, wisdom and righteousness, are means to control your life, then you will be dismayed. You will be frustrated. You'll destroy yourself. So in light of this, he says in verse 18, it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Well, what, what is this both of them? He says, take hold of this and from that don't let go. Well, he's saying, don't live an excessively wicked, foolish life. You know, don't live for your own pleasure and in New Testament language, don't live with selfish ambition and being in empty conceit. But the preacher is also saying, you know, don't live for yourself by, by doing nice things for others, working hard for your company, sacrificing for your family. Because in, in doing these things, you're really doing them so that you can secure long life, stability, and happiness for yourself. In both cases, you're not fearing God. The one who fears God will do nice things for others, will work hard for his or her company, will sacrifice for family. That is the life of wisdom and righteousness. But, but you don't do these things to expect from God guaranteed health, long life without sorrow, and stability. You do these things because you fear and love God. Later on in, in this message, we'll spend time thinking about what, what does it look like to be overly wicked and, and being a fool. But right now, um, we're going to think about, well, what could it mean for us to be overly righteous, making ourselves too wise? And I think we, we should ask ourselves this question, why are we pursuing wisdom and righteousness? You know, for you, why are you going to beacon? Why do you not just show up in small group afterwards, but really be all in, be present, and you're, you're going consistently to small group? Or, or why do you worship on Sunday with, with others? I think this is a helpful question. Are you just going through the motions? And, and this is a serious temptation for us right now during the pandemic. This is where corporate worship and fellowship, it, it's looking through a screen again. And interaction is limited. And things feel very repetitious. You know, why, why do you hop onto YouTube for an hour and a half each Sunday? Are you just going through the motions? Maybe your life is, is full of things that resemble a life of wisdom and righteousness, like being a part of Beacon, being a part of Lighthouse, good things like Jason mentioned earlier, classes, you know, work, uh, an internship, spending time with friends, uh, even over the break, working on personal projects. But have these good things crowded out substantial time with your Father in heaven? You know, maybe we just don't spend as much time listening to him in his word or talking with him in prayer. The good things that we can be involved in begin to curve inward, where subtly they become more about us and our goals than about God and his glory. Maybe we're not as prayerful as we used to be. 
our busy lives, filled with school, work, even ministry, our, our pursuit of other things, they can crowd out a deep and abiding relationship with our Father. So maybe we just have too many things going on in our lives, too many things that we're pursuing, and some things need to be cut off. And we should ask ourselves, am I like, am I living like a functional atheist? Not being still before my God with my Bible open, not meditating on his words, not acknowledging him in prayer for, for the activities of the day. Even if I am, though, pursuing a life of wisdom and righteousness, are we just going through the motions? And is it merely an appearance of wisdom? True wisdom is, is not for control. And here's the next section in Ecclesiastes. True wisdom protects us from danger. In verses 19 to 22. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. We see an illustration in verse 19 of how wisdom has protective power, giving strength to, to one person who's wise, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And then the preacher goes on to give us this application of, of how wisdom protects and, and what is this application? It's in your notes. We ought to understand our own sinfulness. Understand our own sinfulness. And you might think, you know, what does verse 20 have to do with anything he's been talking about? But it's true wisdom to acknowledge this truth, that everyone is a sinner. And people don't just make mistakes. People don't just have issues or problems. People sin against God. And this wise application of that truth is that you shouldn't take to heart what people say about you in public or maybe even behind your back. And this is because you understand that your servant um, in extending that principle to uh, other relationships, um, what your coworker or classmate or friend or, or someone commenting on a video you posted on Facebook or, or YouTube, when, when these people speak ill of you, you understand that they're sinners too. And maybe they had a moment of weakness, a moment of temptation. Maybe they just went along with the crowd. Maybe they didn't want to look as bad as their peer group. It doesn't mean though that you excuse the sin or treat it like it wasn't hurtful, but you realize there are sinners and that you yourself have spoken ill of others. And according to verse 22, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You've done the same thing many times. And this is not haters going to hate. So you just need to shake it off and do whatever you want to do. Um, this is haters going to hate because they're sinners. And so are you. And this doctrine of original sin 
that sin is universal and has, uh, has affected everyone since Adam. This doctrine is, is sobering. It's, it's very comprehensive. But this doctrine is also freeing. And here's why this is freeing. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. When you are acquainted more and more with the depth of your own sinfulness, what can others say about you? Because they don't know the half of it. What, what is the worst that people can say about you? It's not worse than what God already knows about you. And yet knowing the full extent and depth of your sinfulness, God demonstrates his great love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So for you, how have you responded to comments online or what you've heard from hearsay, you know, when people talk about you, make comments about you or your personality? And maybe those comments were even hurtful. I think these are opportunities for us to reflect on why we might be so bothered. Maybe um, we were clinging too tightly to our own reputation, how we're perceived by others, maybe concerned more for our own name than for the name of Christ. You know, I had to work through this myself um, sometime early last year. And when someone made a, a passing comment about the way I behaved in a, in a particular group setting, and, and this setting was a weekly uh, group meeting where discussion was involved. And the passing comment was that I don't, quote, talk at all. Um, so he, he's a friend and, and a brother in Christ. So I, I knew that, you know, what he said was, was not from an ill motive. This was not at all him cursing me, like it says in the verse. Uh, but the comment stung um, because it felt like, you know, it was a little exaggerated. Um, and, and the way it was said sounded uh, like a negative comment, you know, rather than just like a neutral observation about, you know, my personality. So I, I was bothered by it, but I thought, okay, maybe this is something I should just overlook. You know, but the more I thought about it and, and prayed about it, uh, I realized, okay, I think this is something I, I could bring up to him. You know, was it my own reputation that I cared more about? I, I don't think so. Um, but I wanted to talk to him about it because uh, I just wanted to understand um, him better and, and get more of the context. Um, also to, to share my perspective, you know, um, it, if, if that was appropriate, um, as someone who, who didn't really maybe share as much as others in a discussion. Um, and then really to grow. I, I wanted to grow if this is an area in my life I, I needed to address. And even before I talked with them, as I reflected on my own, I realized that, yes, I, this is something that I can grow in. And maybe there was some fear that kept me from sharing more openly in discussion. What was I fearing? So I'm not saying that, you know, like I'm a perfect example of how to handle um, a perceived negative comment. Um, but I, I shared that just to, to give you an example of, of someone who, who wants to prayerfully wrestle through with my own sinfulness 
to see if there's a log that I need to take out for my own eye um, and, and wanting to listen and, and grow. The wisdom that God gives protects us from, from danger by helping us understand our own sinfulness. Okay, going back to the text um, from verse 23 onward, this passage is, is challenging. It can be hard to understand. So um, yeah, I'm going to do some explaining, but the main point is, is this. True wisdom is, is rare and it protects us from danger. The true wisdom is rare and it protects us from danger. Verse 23, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So I believe there are two senses to wisdom here. If you remember back in chapters one and two, the preacher went on this search to, to test himself with pleasure and houses and money and everything else to see if there's ultimate gain in all, in all his toil under the sun. And as he goes on the search, what does he say? He says, you know, I'm drinking wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. He says, I became great in power. My wisdom remained with me. And so he says here in chapter seven, verse 23, all this I've tested by wisdom. So I think that's this limited human wisdom that believer, unbeliever, we can all possess. But then the preacher says, I will be wise, but it was afar from me. You know, that which has been as far off, deep, very deep, who can find it out? I think this is God's wisdom, true wisdom, which is far off. The preacher in Ecclesiastes isn't the only one who says something like this. Job says this in Job 28, verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? True wisdom is rare. It's not something that man can obtain by his own human effort. Job writes later in the same chapter, God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its place. So true wisdom is something that only God first possesses. And it's something that God then gives to people. And it doesn't mean that humans passively wait for wisdom to fall on their lap, so to speak. And so the preacher, he tries to find this wisdom in the ultimate sense. And, and that's something he's been saying throughout the book. Verse 25, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And that last phrase lets you know that this searching is comprehensive, not only seeking to understand wisdom in the opposite, uh, ultimate sense, but, but the opposite of wisdom as well, folly and madness. So in this search, what, what does he find? Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. And the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And this is strange, right? Because all this time, well, for one thing, uh, the preacher has been saying that death is the great silencer. Uh, death is the thing that takes away the righteous and the wicked, the wise and the foolish. What is there that's worse than death? 
This language is powerful. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Uh, this could literally be a woman. You know, when we look at the life of Solomon, we, we know he had a harem of a thousand women and they were foreign women and they had their idols and, and turned Solomon's heart away from his God. So this could be a descriptive of a literal um, adulterer ensnaring someone. But I believe this is broader and wider than the entrapment of, of sexual temptation. And this is because elsewhere in wisdom literature, uh, like in Proverbs chapter 9, wisdom and folly are personified. So I think that's what's happening here. The preacher's saying that this is how folly acts. This is what folly does to people. A folly might present herself as innocent, harmless, fun, but she ensnares and entraps and enslaves. She is vicious. She's active. She is scheming. Folly will destroy you. And this is what the preacher discovers in his search. Living a foolish life, that is more bitter than death. But it is only those who please God who escape a life of folly. And that's why I said true wisdom protects us from danger. Those who please God have been given true wisdom. It protects you. So let's keep moving on. In verse 27, he says, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. True wisdom recognizes that it's limited for us. This phrase, the scheme of things, you know, that, that's just saying an explanation for all that happens in the world. In other words, this is knowledge that belongs to God alone. That cannot be found. And, and actually, that's something that the preacher has said before. But he does say he's found something. Verse 28, it continues. One man among a thousand I found but a woman among all these I have not found. All right, what is he saying here? The NIV, it gives an interpretive translation. It adds the, the adjective upright. And I think the NIV has the, the basic, I mean, it has the sense right. It goes, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Okay, so is the preacher here, is he being a misogynist? You know, is, is he a woman hater? Like, is this this typical attitude of people in his day and, and how they viewed women? Uh, the preacher is, is not saying that there are absolutely no God-pleasing, God-fearing women in this world. He, he's, he's just making an observation that among the thousand that he's seen, um, and, and really that number a thousand, it's just representative, of a large group of people. The point he's making is that among so many people, whether a female, whether male or female, it's very rare to find anyone with true wisdom. True wisdom is rare. Why is it so rare? He concludes with this summary observation, verse 29. 
See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Why is true wisdom so rare? Well, God is not stingy. God is a generous God. He loves to give, and he will give wisdom to those who ask and those who search for it. Wisdom is rare, not because it's God's fault, but because people don't want God's wisdom. Instead of submitting to God's wisdom, his way and his order, people pursue their own schemes, their own way. Man wants to do whatever is right in his own eyes. And this is the testimony of scripture. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So what what do we make of this, that true wisdom is rare? Well, this means that folly is all around us. Folly is the norm. Sin is pervasive. But it's not only pervasive, like the woman who ensnares, sin is deceitful. So I want to give two areas of application for this principle, the deceitfulness of sin. One application is is more in the area of our thinking, our our minds, um, our worldview. And the other application is is more moral. Um, And of course, these two overlap. But both deal with the deceitfulness of sin. So first, application. Beware the subtlety of false ideologies. Beware the subtlety of false ideologies. And as Paul says in Colossians, don't let anyone take you captive through philosophy and empty deception. As Christians, we must always be on the alert because there's spiritual warfare going on even in your classrooms, in what we read on the internet, what we watch. We can't think that what we hear in our classes or read about in our books or on our news feeds, we can't think that these are harmless thoughts and mere opinions. Remember the woman whose heart is snares and nets? A foolishness, which is simply a disregard for God and his ways, this is the norm. It's active, it's prowling, it's all around you. It will ensnare you. And if you are not on the alert and desperate for God's wisdom, you will be swept away by the distorted thinking of the world and the ways of the world. So what are some of the ideology, uh, ideologies that, that you could be facing? Um, I mean, in, in pop culture, there are ma- ma- mantras like believe in your heart, you know, you do you, you only live once. But in academia, you have things that just naturalistic secularism in the name of science. Um, the, there, is, there is confusion over gender identity. We, we must take every thought captive um, to the obedience of Christ. Second point of application, beware the subtlety of sin. I take this illustration from David Pallison's book, Making All Things New. Um, just a heads up, this is a long illustration. Um, the subtlety of sin and the Christian's growth in wisdom, it's like a video game with multiple levels. So this illustration is supposed to show you the subtlety of sin. When you're at level one, the challenge or, or the enemy is, is obvious and it's, it's not so complicated. 
But as you advance to the next level, the challenge gets more complex. You know, you might die a few times in the game, uh, but you keep moving on and, and your skills develop until you reach, say, level 40. So at level one, these, these are high effort, high cost sins. High effort, high cost. Palestine focuses on, on sexual sin, but really this can describe other sins such as anger or greed. So we're taking sexual sins. So level one, they're like adultery or prostitution or criminal sex like, like rape. And these are clearly evil. It, it would take a lot of, of effort to commit these sins and there's a high cost for committing them. But let's say you're, you're saved by the grace of God, you're, you're growing, you know, this adultery, fornicating, all of that is your past. And, and using the video game analogy, let's say now you're at level eight. These are lower effort, lower cost sins, like pornography. And it takes less effort to engage in them. And it's not as costly as the consequence of adultery. And because something like pornography is easier to access and you don't feel the consequences as badly, in one sense, it's, it's harder to defeat, harder to get rid of, to, to free yourself from it. But Christ is merciful. You, you know, you've died multiple times in the game, but by God's grace, you, you keep growing and you keep moving on. That's behind you. Now you're at level 16. And this is what Pallison calls no effort sins. So these are not overt acted out sins like fornication or, or pornography, but these are memories and, and mental videos in your mind. You can be sitting there, but in your mind, you're, you're fantasizing or just replaying scenes that you've, you might've watched. You, know, you wish you could delete all those images and, and the mental videos, but you learn to fight this subtler battle as well. And you, and you keep moving on. And you're at level 24. Now these are sins that, that come looking for you. You know, you're watching a, a movie and something racy appears on the scene, uh, on the screen. And, you know, you're just Googling an idea or a word you're, you're unfamiliar with. And an article you read has an image that's inappropriate. You're not even looking for it or, or dwelling on it in your mind. And it just shows up in your face. But by God's grace, you, you learn to immediately flee from immorality and, and you turn to Christ. And finally, you're at level 32. And Pallison calls this sins so atmospheric, they seem like who you are. And this is when you might not even realize you're doing it, uh, but you see someone and you instinctively size up a person on the basis of sexual attraction. And let me quote Pallison because I cannot describe it better than he does. He says, perhaps this impulse rarely surfaces into conscious awareness. Perhaps you almost as instinctively say no, resisting the urge to steal a lewd look. But the very atmosphere of such erotic intentionality subtly stains you. It is yet another aspect of your battle with darkness. This is the deceitfulness of sin. We face increasing levels of, of subtleness in our battle with sin as we grow in wisdom and in maturity. And maybe sexual sin isn't something you really struggle with and, and you're at level 39. 
You know, you're far quicker than you were before to say no the moment you're conscious of sexual temptation. But how aware are you of the subtle infiltration of other sins in your life, of unrighteous anger or greed or envy or discontentment or pride? How do we live in a world where sin is so subtle and deceitful and false ideologies are all around us? David says this in Psalm 25, my eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. We can't, we cannot but be utterly dependent on the Lord, constantly looking to him clinging to him for mercy and wisdom. And this is the picture of one who fears the Lord. David says in the same Psalm, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. So the one who fears the Lord is, is someone who hears God in his word and receives his instruction. Beacon, we must remember that true wisdom is rare. This means that if you possess this wisdom from above and you're growing in wisdom, then your life should be distinct. You know, you're not like your peers who follow their own way and their own plans. When you hang out with your unbelieving high school friends or college friends, there should be something different about you, the way you think the way you make decisions, the way you talk, what you laugh about, what you don't laugh about. You know, your interests and activities might be exactly the same, but why you do them and how you do them are different. This kind of life, it's not a wasted life. Even if in the good providence of God, such a life is unexpectedly cut short. What happened to the, the Powell's family? You know, our brother and sister Jameson and, and Catherine and their children, that was a huge loss. We don't know why they were so soon taken away. But what we do know, based on the testimony of their lives, observed by people close to them in the church, we know that they lived in a, an obedient life. And in the words of the preacher, they, they feared God and kept his commandments. And that is a wise life. What would those close to you say about you? You know, not what will they say about you 60 years from now? Not what will you be known for 10 years from now as a 29-year-old? But what are you known, known for this very moment? What would be the testimony of your life this very season of your life during the pandemic? Would it be of obedience? Like it was said of the pals, you are someone who fears God. You're someone with the rare jewel of Christian, of true wisdom. And I wanna conclude uh, with a prayer given by John Piper um, at the funeral of the Powell's family. Piper actually prays for you and me. Um, and I'd like you to take special note of, of that part of the prayer. And this is how we'll end the message. Piper says, 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the great and glorious rock where we stand or lie prostrate and on which we give thanks for the lives of Jameson and Catherine and Ezra and Violet and Calvin, who did not count their lives to be more valuable than obedience. We praise you that they did not snatch a few vain years of life on this earth in exchange for allegiance to their king, but set their faces like flint toward Japan and the finishing of their course in the ministry they had received from the Lord Jesus. And we praise you that they did finish it. Like your apostle Paul, who wrote from Rome, I finished my course, though he never got to Spain. We stand on this mighty rock of Christ. And we pray for the young people who remain in this church and throughout the world, that they may find the love of their lives, their Catherine, their Jameson, and embrace together the second proposal Jameson made to lead the family in obedience. As Jameson wrote, quote, whether it is life or death or discomfort or disappointment, to take up our cross, just as Christ did, to suffer and die. Lord, in the name of Jesus and by the blood of these five, I ask, raise up, raise up a legion of replacements for the global glory of his imperial majesty, Jesus Christ. Forbid that any of your children would hear of this news and waste their lives on trifles. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen. Let me, let me pray for us speaking. Father, we know that you are the all-wise, all-loving, all-good God. And we come to you humbly, knowing that we are creatures and you are God in heaven. Father, we need your wisdom to live in this world of folly where sin is so deceitful and there are false ideologies all around us. God, we need your truth in your word and we need your wisdom to know how to apply what you have spoken and what you have kept recorded for us so that even in this generation, even among us, that we might live lives of obedience and that we might live lives of, of true wisdom. So Father, help us, Lord. Even as we continue to discuss in small groups, would you bear much fruit in our lives by the Holy Spirit who is in us, in your son's precious name, amen.